Well, I've been commissioned to give a shorter message, <laughs> not just because of the air conditioning. We're working on it. It's really actually kind of cute. All your foreheads are glistening. Um, all you bald guys, that's great. I'm right there with you. So we are in a series on the divided kings. We just kicked it off last week. It's part of a bigger series on the kings of Israel. We looked at King Saul first, King David second, King Solomon third. Good job. Last week, we saw King Rehoboam. Good job. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, uh, kind of a complete imbecile who actually was given this incredible inheritance and then divided the nation uh, because of his stupidity. And then we saw the northern kingdom was called Israel, very close, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Great. And so we find is in this season of Scripture where we are in, it's called the divided kings. There's a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And uh, so what I want to do with you is I want to prepare you. Um, I want to prepare you because we're going to be in this series through the end of July. And this series is just a wee bit dark. Uh, these men are really dumb. Most all of them. There's a few bright shining lights in the group of kings, okay? But the majority of these men do really, really, really weird, dark things, get in trouble, and God has to judge them. And you may be sitting here week in and week out, and you may just be wondering, man, these guys are just big bummers. Why are we preaching on this? And so here's what I want to do. I want to spend just a short period of time this morning. I want to answer one question for you. That's my goal. You think I can do a village church? One question. No. Here's the question. You guys are so funny. Why does God invest so much real estate in Scripture on the failures of so many people? Why does God invest so much real estate in Scripture on the failures of so many people? It is very hard to take an honest reading of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and be an optimist about the human race, right? God is not set out to paint humanity as an awesome group of people who are inherently good. Somebody give me an amen on that, right? 88% of the kings of Israel are evil and compromised. 88%. You would think a group of people who have the law of God and the prophets of God and the people of God, that they could do better than that. 80 8% rebelled against God. I want to read to you a few of the epitaphs of some of these kings, just to give you maybe a sneak peek of what we're about to embark upon. King Jehoram, here's what it says. After all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And in case you think this is the disease you have, it's not. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease. And he died in great agony. It's kind of funny the second time I read it. Okay. Sorry, I don't know why that hit me. It hit me afresh right now. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I think it was whoever made that noise. Just That was funny. He was, oh, okay, sorry, we'll keep going. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. King Manasseh says this, his epitaph. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin he had made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. King Ahab. So the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot 
by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. I mean, this is some dark, heavy stuff, and we're about to jump into about two to three months of this. There's a question that came up for me, another tangential question here. Um, Wouldn't God, I don't know about you, but I think this all the time, don't you think God would be more glorified if his people were more faithful? Like, I sometimes, I'm trying to, like, understand, okay, God, why didn't you just give your followers, like, an injection of the Holy Spirit that made us more prone to obey than what we are, okay? And somehow, and for some reason, God thought he would get more glory by not doing that and letting his people have this massive wrestling match with our flesh, okay? And so here's what I think is happening, okay? God could have just made all of you obey perfectly at once, okay? But here's what happens because he has let you not be perfect until Jesus comes back. Every day that you're alive and he does not destroy you, his mercy is seen. His forgiveness is seen. His grace is seen. His patience is seen. His endurance with you is seen. His love for you is more clearly on display. Somehow, God thought the spectrum of his attributes would be on more display for all of the world to see if for some reason he would let us have this wrestling match, imperfect as we are, and he would love us anyways despite our rebellion. Somebody give me an amen right now. Like, I mean, that is I don't get it because if I were God, I would do it differently. But apparently he's smarter than me and he's a genius and he's the source of all wisdom and knowledge. So I'm going to go with his approach. But this seems to be the way that he is determined to get the most amount of glory. Now, I want to go back to the original question. Okay, here it is. Why does God invest so much real estate in Scripture and the failures of so many people? Here's the answer, and I'm going to explain it. God, through these stories of epic failure, is preparing you, the reader, to meet the greatest leader and hero of all time, Jesus. You cannot read the pages of Scripture without wanting a better leader, without wanting something more. There's something inside of you and me that says something has to be better than this. Who can come along and be the leader that we need, the Savior that we need, the governor that we need? And at the end of the day, what God is trying to prepare humanity for by by putting so much real estate is he's preparing us for our need for Jesus. So I want to explain it in two points. Point number one, how do these stories of failure prepare me for Jesus? Number one, by revealing my true nature through their stories. By revealing my true nature through their stories. I mean, most religions, okay, um, they orchestrate their books, and their heroes are all over the pages of their books, right? And they're, they're so great, and look how wonderful they are. Our religion is great. You can be really great if you're part of our religion. Christianity is completely different. All of the heroes in Scripture almost all seem to be tempered with some sort of massive, epic failure in their character, okay? You think about Noah, who was the most righteous man in all the earth. God had destroyed the entire world because of rampant wickedness, so he saves Noah and his family. And just when you think Noah is this good, godly, faithful guy, he has sex with his two daughters in drunkenness. And you're like, what is going on with you? Elijah, this great prophet taken up by God in a whirlwind, right? And, and, he is slaying all these wicked, evil um, uh, prophets and priests on Mount Carmel, defending the Lord, calling fire down from heaven. And then he goes into this deep depression, doubts the goodness of God, right? At every single 
corner, you get these heroes, and they're always tempered with, but they're not perfect, and they will let you down. You get to King David. I mean, the man after God's own heart, right? I mean, he loved the Lord, and for the first 20 years of his kingship, right, he did great until Bathsheba. And then he decides to kill her husband to hide what's really going on. And God waits, crazy, he waits over nine months to call him out on it, giving him nine months to repent, nine months to come to him. The baby's actually born before Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him. I mean, we could go on and on and on. You find me a great hero of the Bible, and the Bible will almost always temper them by revealing the true state of their humanity. But more real estate is given than we can possibly understand to these epic fails. The majority of the recorded life and the narratives of David is about the, the result of his failures, not how awesome of a king he actually was. And there's this principle here I think that's really great. Number one is that all human leadership is broken. And so we are dying for good leaders, a good president, a good governor, a good pastor, a good parent. Like everything in us wants a good leader. And here's basically what you can learn by reading the Bible. Every leader will let you down. Every leader will let you down. Get to know Tim long enough, he will let you down. I've let the majority of you down multiple times. But this is a part of the rhythm of leadership. It's a part of the rhythm of what God wants you to understand when you read Scripture. If you put your hope and put too much expectation on a human being, they will utterly fail you every time. Leadership is a stopgap to push people back to God, to Jesus Christ. It is not the end-all and be-all. You cannot look to a human being. They will fail you. Not only is leadership broken, but followership is broken, okay? Give me an amen on this one, right? Why are we inclined to find everything wrong with our leaders? Why are we inclined to criticize? Why are we inclined to rebel? Why are we inclined to grumble, right? When you read the stories of God's people, here's what you should be seeing a mirror of your nature. And sometimes we step back and say, I'm better than that. I'm better than that because we're better than the person next to us or we're better than the rest of our family, right? But what the Bible does is it's shining a mirror on our nature and character of what you and I would be like without Jesus. If you're better than the people of Israel, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you one reason. It's because God himself has made you better, not because you're inherently good. And so that's hard. That's hard because some of us come out and we're like, you know, you're raised in a good home, you're raised in a good church, and you don't know what your life would be like without Jesus. Some of you do. But even those of you who didn't come to Jesus until later on in life, I want you to hear me. God is restraining evil on a global level amongst non-Christians as well. Even the non-Christian, as wicked and rebellious as we at times might be, is restrained by God. We are not given over to the fullness of what we could be. So here's what happens in the Bible. In the New Testament, right, God pours out his wrath before the second coming like this. He walks back. He just takes a step back. Read Romans 1. He takes a step back, and this is the wrath of God. He removes himself from the picture, and he gives people over to their utter sinfulness. That's the wrath of God, because what we are capable of will destroy us. Whether you are the most solid believer in Jesus in this room, should God pull back from you, you would be given over to your nature, which is dark. 
And so when we read these stories of these kings and we read how frustrating they are, right, and we point the finger at them and say, how could you? What the Bible is demanding you and I to do is to take that finger, point it back at yourself and say, thank you, God, for saving me from me apart from the grace of God. There go I. And so we step back and we look at this and the kings are here. These stories, these failures are here so that you and I can realize our true nature, and we need a hero to save us. We need a Savior who is better than any human leader on this planet because no human leader has yet been able to save humanity from destroying ourselves. History is one grand story of our stupidity and our self-destruction. Look at the 21st century or the 20th century. More people died in that century in war alone than in any other century combined. I pray no century even comes close to that. That's how dark humanity is. And so we read these stories and we step back and we look at Israel. And here's what we say. They need a savior. Well, now take that finger and point it back in yourself and say, I need a savior. I need am Israel. They are me. That's my heart apart from the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. If I'm at all better than them, thank you for welling up that goodness inside of me. And so we look at Israel, and the first thing that I think God wants you to see here very clearly is that he wants you to be drawn to Jesus and their story. You look at them and say, oh man, they need Jesus. No, I need Jesus. I think personally, when you read about their stupidity, it should be like a massive relief to you. Because I think most people, what I've found is they're trying to hide their stupidity. They're trying to hide their darkness. And sometimes it's just good to know that you're not alone. Like, everybody in this room is equally dumb. Can I get an amen? Like, we're equally jacked up. Like, we just hide it better. Or God has done a little bit more work in us. But at the end of the day, I read these stories. I'm like, phew, I'm not the only one. And if God can allow David to commit adultery, impregnate Bathsheba, and murder him, and have the patience and mercy to wait nine months before he even confronts him, how merciful is God to you and me? God's patience and endurance and forbearance and grace and mercy are all over the pages of the Old Testament. Every moment that God withholds judgment is another act of mercy and grace on his part. Every act. I love it. Uh, Number two. How do these stories of failure prepare me for Jesus? By warning me of the sure calamity to come. I think God's judgment, when I watch them, it kind of keeps me on my toes. I think to myself, I don't ever want to fall under the judgment of God. Give me an amen. Just give me an amen on that one. Come on. Unless you do want to fall under the judgment of God, then have at it. That's your call, but whatever. So there's this um, phrase that's going to come up. You'll see it, and it's called the day of the Lord. And what's going to happen are the prophets are going to prophesy to these kings, and they're going to warn them, if you keep rebelling, the day of the Lord is going to come. And the day of the Lord is any day of judgment where God enters in and he judges people. Usually it is wrath through armies or death or plague or pestilence. It's usually something really severe where a lot of people die. And so God comes in and he sends the prophets and says, repent, repent, repent. The day of the Lord is coming. And one of the things that we see here is what happens when we ignore God's command for us to repent. Because here's the deal. God will deal with every sin eventually, even though in his patience he may postpone dealing with them. Every single infraction will be decisively and justly 
dealt with. Every infraction of every human being, everything you should have done, would have done, could have done, might have done, every thought you thunk, every deed you did, everything you might have done. I mean, you name it. Every deed or deed that should have been done will come under judgment. And God, because he is just, will deal with it. I mean, how many of you want to um, have a judge who just lets rapists and thieves and murderers and liars go and just say, in the name of love, go, everybody's forgiven, right? It doesn't work like that. Because God's holy and just, he cannot do it. And so the day of the Lord uh, are all these many days, but they all point to one great and terrible day of the Lord, where once and for all, justice will be executed throughout, throughout all of human histories. No longer will they be little microcosms of judgment, but it will be one grand, worldwide, universal uh, day of judgment where everybody is exposed. Now, I think you can break this day kind of up into two places, okay? Number one, you have the death of Christ on the cross, where God, in the greatest act of judgment in human history, poured out the fullness of all of his anger and wrath for every sin that every believer would ever commit before Jesus, during Jesus' death, and after Jesus' death until his second coming. Every single sin, all of God's just anger and righteousness, poured out on Jesus, one of the most magnanimously judgmental dark days we can ever possibly imagine. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, the day of the Lord has come for you and it came on the cross. If you're not a believer in Jesus, the final day of the Lord will come at the final judgment when Jesus Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead. And I guarantee you this, I promise you with all of my heart, you do not want to stand before a holy and righteous God without your sins being forgiven. You need a savior. You need a hero. You need someone to walk into your life and say, I can forgive this. I can fix that. When you stand before the just, holy, righteous God of this universe on the day of judgment, I can be a mediator for you. I can absolutely give you 100% confidence that if you were to die and face him today, not one of your sins will come upon your own shoulders because I took them all on myself. I can do that for you. And no human being can do that. No leader can do that. No government can do that. They have failed us over and over and over again. Jesus comes into the picture and says, I can do that. Because I'm fully God and fully man. I am perfectly righteous. I can take your punishment and rise again from the dead. I've got this thing under control. Um, what do I have to do to earn it? Here's the cool thing. Nothing. Somebody give me an amen on that one, right? Wake up, it's hot. I know, we'll live. I'm sweating too, okay? If I don't fall asleep, you cannot fall asleep, okay? Nothing. Nothing. Because you can't add to it. You can't take away from it. No amount of your righteousness will make it better. It is. So you come to Jesus on Jesus' terms and you say, I got nothing I can add, right? Will you save me? Because you said that if I ask, you will. Yeah, totally, absolutely. I'll give you my Holy Spirit. Let's do this. Little Church, all of these things are written so that there is this desperation for a Savior. We live on this side of Jesus, and they were desperate. Remember Jesus in the uh, last week of his life on Palm Sunday? He walks in, and they are shouting, Hosanna, which means save us now they're desperate and they think they need another political leader and that Rome is their greatest problem. No way, not a chance. They need God in the flesh to pay for the price of their sins. That's what they need because more dangerous and scary than Rome is standing before a holy, righteous God with your sins unforgiven. And so they, they didn't quite get it, but now they got it because all of them are dead. <laughs> the whole point of all this is to show you what you're made of and to let you know 
that God is the hero. And he gave his son, Jesus Christ, who saved us. That these little days of the Lord that we're going to watch happen, they're just microcosms, they're shadows, they're pictures that point us to the great day of the Lord. And Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. And so as we read these stories, as we look at their darkness and their stupidity and their frustration, even when we look at the good guys, here's what we remember. Every leader fails us. Apart from the grace of God, there go I. And all of this is to point me and my heart like an arrow to Jesus Christ, who is my hero, he is my savior, he's my perfect leader, and he never, ever lets me down. I'd love to say as a group of elders, we'll never let you down. That's not going to happen. But here's what I can say. Jesus will never let you down, and when we do, we'll say we're sorry. So what I want to do is I want to ask the band to come up. <clears throat> I want to pray. And uh, I find myself personally so grateful this morning. I'm grateful for my salvation. I'm grateful that um, despite my dumbness, God loves me. I am dis- I'm so grateful that God has called each of us to serve him, to know him, to love him. Um, I'm so grateful Tim and Renee get to be here at the Village Church. I'm so pumped for you guys. I'm grateful I can sweat and preach. I mean, it's loaded hot in here. So I want to pray, and then we're going to stand up and worship. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have never forsaken those who are your children. We deserve it, God. I am so amazed that you have not obliterated me yet. But the fact that I'm still here is just proof that you love me. And so, God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us the Old Testament things written for our instruction to give us hope. God, I pray that as we see those stories, that our gratitude to you would just go through the roof, that apart from Jesus, there we go. God, I thank you that you're the hero. You are our Savior. God, I thank you that you're coming back to judge the living and the dead, and you will execute justice and righteousness over the entire world. And then, and only then, when Jesus reigns, will this world function the way it's supposed to function. And so, God, we love you, and what better response can we have than to the reality of your salvation and your coming kingdom than to worship you? We love you, praise you, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.